Praise God. I am very, very fortunate to be able to travel a lot, and I get to go from church to church, and I want you to know, just from my travels, how blessed you are. I'm in a lot of different contexts, and to have Bishop Williams as the bishop here is a great blessing because of his apostolic authority and calling on him, and it's it's such a blessing, and then to have Pastor Dustin Williams here, to have his authority and his, his anointing as a scholar, and there's something you have to understand. I know a lot of people try to like pigeonhole teacher into an office, and you know, teacher is the last of the five, so they're the bottom of the you know the rung. But if you read your Bible, all five in the fivefold are profound teachers. The Apostle Paul, clearly a teacher. The evangelist or the prophet John is a teacher. The evangelist Stephen or uh, Philip, rather, an evangelist. Understand this without read us. The pastor Apollos, teacher, and so. It is a mandate for the ministry to be teachers because according to Ephesians, it says, and these are given for the equipping of the saints. It doesn't say, and this one is given for the equipping of the saints. It says, and these, talking about all five. And you have such a blessing here. In fact, I believe that Isaiah, the prophet, was a prolific scholar in his day. And you have such a a blend, and I I can feel the the utterances of the prophetic and brother Dustin, it comes out of him here and there. And prophet isn't a fortune teller. I, and I'm, I'm just kind of like throwing stuff out here right now. I hope you know that a prophet's not someone who just tells the future all the time. In fact, if you can show me one future telling from Elijah, I'll buy into it. But Elijah doesn't tell the future one time and he's a prophet. Prophets are covenant watchdogs. That's what, that's what prophets are. Prophets look at you, and actually they spend more time pointing backwards than they do forward. They say, hey, you're not doing that which he said, and if you don't, this will happen. That's what a prophet is doing, and you have that here in this church, as well as a multitude of other ministers that hold up the rest of the fivefold. And I say all of that, y'all are incredibly blessed, (laughs) incredibly blessed. And so I just want you to give honor with me to the powerful ministry that's in this church. And I know it's not just one-sided because they talk about how wonderful this church is. Brother Dustin this afternoon was talking about people in this church that he just thinks the world of, and they think this of you. So they've honored you in private, and we can honor them in this setting. So I just want you to honor them with me today. I'm very thankful for them, thankful for their authority. I feel a direction, and before I read our text, before I say what I'm about to say, I'm going to go to Judges 3, verse 12. But um, before I read it, there's something you have to understand about our adversary, and there's something you must understand about our Savior. If you don't understand the nature of our adversary and our Savior, you're going you're gonna to be deceived. You're going to be offended. You will likely walk away from the faith if you don't understand our Savior, his ways, and the deceiver. And if you don't understand this deceiver of your soul, you're going to make statements like, the devil's an idiot. The devil lost the keys to his own house. The devil is so dumb. I don't know who told you that. (laughs) The devil is infinitely smarter than you. He's been doing this a long time. 
He's been doing this a lot longer than you and I. We have no hope if we go into the boxing ring with him, okay? He is strategically smarter than us. Our hope is joining with someone who's been doing it longer. Okay? That spirit that's within you that you obey and you listen to, it will lead and guide you. Okay? But this deceiver has been portrayed as an evil man wearing, you know, carrying a pitchfork. He's got the goatee. He's painted red. That's kind of how he's personified. If the devil were personified biblically in our modern context, he would be the most reasonable person in the room. Your, your adversary reasons with you, and he makes a lot of good sense. Okay, I'm, I'm setting a foundation here for what I want to minister this evening. And if you don't have any word in you, You will, you will listen to him because he's reasonable. Hear the, I want you to hear the ways of our Savior. Jesus Christ standing in the Jordan River and the voice for our benefit says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father is saying that not because there's three in this situation, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. It's for our benefit showing us we're the sons and daughters if we are obedient as the man Jesus, it will be said of us. These are my sons in whom I'm well pleased. But the spirit after that, the Bible said, thrust him. It uses the word thrust into the wilderness. The spirit did this, okay? And Jesus is living on that bread. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Day one, living on a word. Day two, living on the word. Day three, living on the word. Day 39, He's weak. And on day 39, you notice the adversary doesn't come on day one, day two. He's strategic. Day 39, though. You haven't heard a word in 39 days, have you? Let me come and reason with you. Turn the stone into bread. That's not evil. That's reasonable. And it's very easy if you don't understand the nature of the deceiver and the nature of the Savior to say, why did the Spirit thrust me out here? Why did the Spirit lead me into this wilderness? Why did the Spirit do this? And in that setting, the devil looks a lot nicer than the Savior. And we will fall every time without word. And then wouldn't you know it that the thing Jesus quotes to overcome the adversary is the word? Why does the Savior do this? Well, I'll reveal that to you in this message. Judges 3, verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. I want you to see something here. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Let's put it this way. The Lord allowed the pandemic. And see, if you don't understand this God, you're going to be very offended in the end time hours. And I will, I will prophesy to you, you will walk away if you don't have word in you. You're too weak-minded to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
Your arguments will not stand against him because he's far more reasonable, it seems, at times than God. God feels unreasonable a lot in the Bible. But there's a reason why God does these things. Verse 13, and he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. I want to preach to you tonight God's secret weapon. God has a secret weapon that he is employing. He's putting it into the sheath of every uh, disciple that's in the end times. And God has been equipping the saints in this end time hour. And we have been oblivious to it because we're offended by him. And I want to minister to you and reveal to you God's ways. And what will happen tonight is the word of God will strip the adversary of his lie and it'll put into the saints the equipping of what to do in the end times. Now, what you do with this is entirely up to you. I can't make you survive in the end times. What I can do is give you the word God gave me, and I know that his word says he's no respecter of persons. So what it did for me, it will do for you. In that, I am confident. But what you do with it, I am not confident in. It's entirely up to you. So to move forward, let's raise our hands and submit ourselves to the word. Not our own ideas, our own agendas, our own wills. Right here in the beginning of the service is where your will dies. I want you to pray the prayer of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. That's your prayer right now. I want to see my brothers and sisters thriving in the end times, Father. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to know your ways. I want them to know that there are times when you will strengthen an adversary against us. But God, it is not because you are cruel. It is because you are giving your people authority. And it's provoking us to a much deeper place. Father, I pray that as I minister this, you hide me behind the veil of your spirit. God, for I am doing the work of the prophet, Lord. I want to do the work that you've called me to do, and I want to reveal the schemes of the devil, Father, and I want to be preserved, and I want to be safe. As I do this, God, I speak from your word, not from my flesh. I will not rebuke the adversary. I will say what Michael said. The Lord rebukes you. So, Father, I don't stand in an arrogant place tonight. What I want to do is stand in a biblical place. Your spirit has has authority in this house to rebuke the adversary and to redeem your people from his schemes. So I pray that that be done this evening. And God, I hide myself behind your veil, behind your spirit. Shield me, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. And would you give the Lord a hand clap? Thank you, Jesus. Look at someone and say, God has a secret weapon. You can be seated. It was on August 9th of 1942 that CBS began a radio series that they titled Our Secret Weapon. It was moderated by the radio host who went by the name of Rex Stout. The program was specifically used to counter propaganda from the Axis forces. 
CBS employed 11 linguists who would monitor the Axis radio programs for 19 hours a day, and their sole job was to listen to these foreign languages as linguists and interpret and write down and collect all the lies that were being told by the Axis about the Allied forces. You see, at this particular time, there was military propaganda going on, and part of the warfare went beyond the battlefield, and they weren't just fighting with tanks and machine guns and different ways of warfare that we're used to. They employed also lies and propaganda. Political influence was a new type of warfare. It's not a group of people gathering on one side of a field and packing gunpowder into a musket and charging another group of people on the other side of the field. This is strategic warfare. And at this particular time in history, the Axis forces were creating cartoons about America, and they portrayed the president, who was Franklin Roosevelt, as a man on crutches. And they said, since the president is a man on crutches, he is weak, and so if the president is weak, therefore the entire nation is weak. They would spread lies about how the Axis armies had more troops than the Allied armies, and many, many other lies. This was a way of rallying the countries together and saying we're stronger than they are. It was a beating of the chest, so to speak. And it was all interpreted by these 11 linguists who spent 19 hours a day collecting lies. The linguists hired by CBS would then translate the lies and the propaganda, which resulted in 30,000 words a week. They would type them out, and they would hand them over to the radio host, who was Rex Stout, and Rex Stout would then pour over the accumulated data for an average of 20 hours a week. He would then take all of these lies and reduce them down to a segment of time on the radio where he would begin to speak to the American people, and he would debunk the lies using facts. He would take the lie which said that the Axis forces had more troops, and he would come against this lie with facts, and he would go and tell, this is actually how many troops our spies have found that the Axis forces have, and this is how many troops the Allied forces have. We actually have more troops, and we have more military. It is, it is a way of debunking lies with facts. And Stout said in September of 1942 in an interview, he said these words, the propaganda and the lies must be drawn to the attention of the American people so that they will know how words are killing men in this war as effectively as guns, tanks, and bullets. The secret weapon in the eyes of Rex Stout and CBS was facts versus lies. This was how they would counter this propaganda war. This story resonates with me because I have personally sifted through and I have poured over mountains and mountains of scripture over the last half decade, and I keep seeing a recurring biblical fact that the enemy has keenly and effectively lied to the church about in this modern day. It's a fact that is God's secret weapon. 
The secret weapon is shown in the third chapter of Judges. Judges 3, verse 7, before our text, it says that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God, and they served Balaam in the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Kishan Rishathaim eight years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them. His name was Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The first judge that is ever shown within the holy text during a time of national calamity for Israel where they are rebellious and God strategically employs an adversary to provoke them back into covenant would be a man named Otniel that would deliver them. The reason for his great victory that would ensue in the following verses is his name. The reason why he had so many victories was not because of his military prowess. It was not because of his strategic warfare. It was not because of his gym regimen or his diet program. It was because of the name that was given to him. You see, the name Otniel is God is my strength. That is the revelation. A man will have victory when he goes by the identity. God is my strength. A woman will have a victory when they have the identity that God is my strength. You see, this judge would set a precedence for all judges who would follow, which is this revelation. God is the strength of the people. It is not your diet program. Otniel, it is not your sword. It is the revelation you have of me. When we get a strong revelation of us, which I hope that you have a strong revelation of yourself, which is horribly inept. And when you compare that against your revelation of God, beautifully and extravagantly divine, humility always finds you because you have put yourself in your proper place. But the question that we all have and we all grapple with daily is, how does one go about getting a revelation of such magnitude, such as God is my strength? The following judge in our opening text reveals to us how we get this revelation. Judges 3.12, we read it in the beginning. It says, and the children of Israel did evil again because there seems to be a human condition There's something wrong with us that no matter how many times God delivers, we really like dysfunction. There is a a drawing in us that always calls us to the reasonable voice. This is the, the tactic of an adversary, and it's lies. God's unreasonable. Why would he thrust you into the wilderness? Here's what's reasonable. Turn the stone into bread. 
That's reasonable. The adversary doesn't, he, this is why Paul said he comes clothed as an angel of light. He's not, he's not going to come with the appearance of evil. When you expect evil, you are being deceived. The adversary knows what you're looking for, and he comes as something else. He's very good at camouflage. And so they did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made himself a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. He had a weapon. Once again, though, Israel fails at the covenant they made with God, which was simple. We will only serve God, and we will love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Yahweh, our Elohim, he is the only one I'm going to serve. In my midst is a lot of false gods. He's the only one I commit my allegiance to. I don't pledge my allegiance to anything else other than him. And I will commit my entire heart, my entire soul, and my entire strength to that. And they did it. And God raises up an enemy. But when they cry out, God also raises up a deliverer. Now they are under the turmoil of King Eglon of Moab, a nation that God left, according to Judges 3, verse 1, to prove Israel by them. You have to ask yourself, why did God tell Moses, I'm going to leave the false prophets in the promised land? Why would God do that? It's the same question of why would God give us a tree that he didn't want us to eat from? Because he gave you a will. And it pleases him when you use that will to say, nevertheless, not my will. The freedom you gave me, I don't choose it. I'm committing my entire heart, soul, and strength unto you. What do you want? The Bible tells us. And they did not do this, and God raises up an adversary against them. The people cry out, which the first time it only took eight years for them to cry out. The second time, it took 18 years for them to cry out. When you flirt around with things and you go back and forth, it gets harder and harder to come back. You're getting hardened is what's happening. Nevertheless, God heard them. He raised up a judge, Ehud the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, the phrase left-handed man in Hebrew is ish eter yad yemino, which it means a man restricted in his right hand. The Hebrew text outlines to the native readers that would read this in their original Jewish language that Ehud's right hand had somehow been rendered useless, whether through a birth defect or an injury, we do not know. But to add insult to injury, the text says that he is a Benjamite, which is Hebrew for son of my right hand. Here is a man who God raises up as a deliverer and he is restricted in his right hand and he's out of the smallest tribe in Israel 
And he is from a tribe that identifies as son of my right hand, and his right hand doesn't even work. He's the least qualified for the job, the last expected, the last one to be picked in dodgeball. This is not the guy you expect to be raised up as a deliverer. But we're asking the question, how does one get the revelation that God is my strength? Ehud shows us through his life and ministry how someone gets the revelation that God is my strength. God had a secret weapon. Nevertheless, Ehud makes himself a dagger. He hides it under his clothes. He is the least qualified man for the job, but he's got a secret weapon sitting on his side. He goes to the upper room of King Eglon, and he leans forward, and he says, I have a message from God unto thee. He then pulls the sword from his right thigh, and he kills the king, which initiates freedom from the Moabites. But the secret weapon was not the sword. If you think that the secret weapon sitting on his side was his sword, then you are the one that is reading the Bible looking for power. When the Bible does not expose us to power when we read it, it exposes us to a gardener. We are nothing in all of this, folks. The reason why we're enamored with the supernatural is because somehow, for some reason, it makes us feel special. And we're obsessed with things. When God is looking for really good Christians, and your silence tells me that you want more power and you don't like being good Christians. The secret weapon is not the sword. For God knew that if it were, then everyone who made a two-edged sword, one cubit length, would attain power. It wasn't in how he concealed it under his clothes, for God knew that there would be seminars on which clothes to wear and books written. Three easy steps to hide your sword under your clothes for victory over your enemy. The victory wasn't in his left hand, for God knew that if it was in his left hand, then you and I would have conferences and we would, we would put on growth conferences on how to train your left hand for battle. This is what we do. We're obsessed with telling everybody how to be more anointed, how to be better at preaching, how to be better at this whole walk with God thing. And God's ways are not our ways. And I have sifted through and I have poured over mountains of biblical data and the adversary has been lying to us and he has deceived us. And he's looking at us, he said, go after spiritual power, but don't be weak. You see, God's secret weapon and the revelation that you and I must have to get that God is my strength, God's secret weapon was not the left hand of Ehud, not the sword, not the clothes that it was hidden under. The secret weapon sitting on his side was his crippled right hand. God's secret weapon is weakness. God is attracted to weakness. He is in love with weakness. There's something that moves his heart when he sees us. This is why the Bible tells us that he draws near to the broken heart. There's something about somebody who identifies in their weakness and they recognize that I am nothing. This is why God loves barren wombs. And he says, I'll birth it through you because you don't get credit at the end of this deal. I can birth a miracle through you because there's no way you could ever take any credit for the victory. This is why God likes to reduce Gideon's armies down to nothing because he knows if I do this, you don't get any credit for all of this. I am in, in 
enthralled with and in love with and attracted to weakness. But meanwhile, you and I fast more for power. We read books on how to overcome the devil. And we say arrogant things like, I rebuke you in the, in the name of Jesus. You don't have the authority to even start with the personal pronoun I. Michael, the war angel, didn't even have the authority to say, I rebuke you. He looked at Satan and said, the Lord rebukes you. And this is what's getting us in trouble. When we look at the adversary and we say, I rebuke you, the adversary says, oh, you think you're strong enough. God is attracted to, in love with, and drawn to Weakness. This is why Exodus 15, 6 says, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. This has nothing to do with me and you. We are weak, and God loves us for that. This is why God went to the Gentiles, because we didn't stand a chance. He was drawn to us because there was nothing in us that had any notoriety. We didn't have the right bloodline. And God looked at us, and he says, Oh, I want them. There's something special about them. But woe to the Gentiles when we think we're entitled to anything and we think we're something. This is why I see greater moves of God amongst smaller churches than I do larger churches at times. And I love the larger churches that have moves of God because somehow the size of the church hasn't gotten into their psyche. But something about the small groups, there's something about the Benjamites, the smallest tribe that God loves. He loves Weakness And God uses men with a weakness at vulnerable times because weak men at vulnerable times are perfect opportunities for the strength of God to be revealed. So God's strategic plan is to allow things into our midst that were designed to make us weaker. But there's something about each and every one of us is that we come from dust. We come from nothing. And that's the thing we reject more than anything. I don't want to become nothing. So I must make myself somehow something. And so we say things like, this is how much money that I make. This is how many conferences that I've preached. This is what I've done. This is where I've been. This is how many uh, stocks and bonds that I have. Or this is how many followers that I have. We're always trying to make ourselves something because we know our origins are nothing. And we think somehow that God is attracted to this when we come to him with a resume. When Jesus sitting in the Jordan River had no resume and the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hasn't cast out a devil. Jesus hasn't called a single disciple yet. Jesus hasn't raised the dead. He hasn't preached on the mountain. He hasn't gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. He hasn't died. He hasn't quoted scripture to the adversary in the wilderness. He's done nothing as far as a resume is concerned other than be obedient to the call. And God says, I am pleased. God is pleased to obedience, not resumes. God loves 
weakness. When a national dilemma occurs, which God allows, it forces mere mortals into a place of total dependency. And we see that someone greater is needed in that context. There's a reason why the Bible says, except you become like little children. It's not talking about you being infantized. It's, it's, there's a deep layer of meaning that's happening there. A child is dependent upon a father. And there's things that children cannot do. The children can't reach the top shelf. The children can't move certain things. They are in need of the parent. And Jesus was looking at us and he says, except you become vulnerable like children and you understand your need for someone greater. That's the only way that you and I can come together and be strong. I have no use of your strength, but I am drawn to your weakness. Problems are designed to weaken us and everything within our being rejects this. This is, we, we, we full on reject weakness because that can't be the will of God. Unfortunately, the tribe of Benjamin misunderstood that Ehud's secret weapon was his weakness because we see in Judges 20:16 that there were 700 chosen men who were so skilled with their left hand that they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Something happened to the Benjamites that they saw Ehud at a conference and said, that dude knocked it out of the park with his left hand. See, what we're going to do is if God used him, it must be because of how he trained his left hand. So let's all train our left hands. And there were 700 chosen Benjamites who were so skilled with their left hand that they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Yet, Israel is in a state of debauchery here. If God was pleased with their left hands, then why were they so morally corrupt at this point in text? Well, if Ehud had a victory with his left hand, then we'll train ours too. Well, if Brother Tuttle is used at congresses and conferences because he prays six hours a day and studies, then that's what I'll do. Or if pastor is used in the pulpit this way because of this that he does, I'll go do it too. God uses these men. He uses these women because they have identified with their weaknesses. And God says, I can trust you with divine glory because you'll take no credit for it. You want to be used of God? Learn how to be weak. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man. And goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. There's a Benjamite in the text. And this Benjamite is taller than everybody. He's a giant. And his dad is a mighty man of power. But he's from the smallest tribe in Israel. And so you have to ask yourself, and these are the things we need to meditate on when we read our Bible. First of all, we need to meditate when we read our Bible and just stop reading it to check it off the list. We need to actually read it and go think about it all day long instead of just saying, well, I'm done with that. I don't have to think about it anymore. Digest your bread. Don't just eat it. Digest it. Eat the bread and meditate on it. 
But in this passage, we see that Saul is a Benjamite, but he is a good-looking dude, and he's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So we have to ask ourselves, did God choose him because he's a Benjamite from a smallest tribe, or did God choose him because he's the tallest man in Benjamin? Well, in our context, in our culture, we would say God must have chosen because he's tall because there's a giant out there. So God's looking for giants. This is what the North American church would say. God chose him because he was big. Well, why didn't it work? Why is Saul throwing himself on his spear? Why is Saul trying to keep the son of Judah from being king, even though God said that's what the will was? Why is Saul throwing himself on a spear and losing his crown? Why is he doing all of this stuff? And then in the same passage, God raises up David. David is from the tribe of Judah, the largest tribe in Israel. But he is a small, ruddy boy. So juxtaposed against one another is a man from the largest tribe against the man from the smallest tribe. And the man from the smallest tribe is taller than everybody, but the man from the largest tribe is smaller than everybody. Did God choose David because of his tribe or his height? Well, we know the ways of God. We know that his word says, despise not small beginnings. We know that God tells us in his word that he raises up the humble and he puts down the proud. We know his nature because we've read our Bibles. So we can make the definitive statement that God chose Saul because he was a Benjamite, not because he was tall. And we can say that God chose David, not because he was a Judite, but because he was small. God loves weakness. He's attracted to those that are weak and they come into prayer meetings and they express to him, God, I'm not capable of doing X, Y, and Z. God, I have no ability to do this thing that you've asked me. God, I am not the person that is able to do this. God, when we come before him and we identify in our weaknesses, That is our secret weapon. But a reasonable adversary comes along and reads us our resume. It's reasonable. It's not evil. This is is why you should be preaching and not him. This is what's getting the church in trouble. This This is why you should be pastor and not them. This is why you should be singing lead and not them. This is why you should be the one doing this and not that person. You're more qualified. In those moments when you feel those thoughts, just give yourself some credit. All of us have felt them. But when they come, your job is to say, I am the least qualified, though. That's, 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 I, I identified that this spirit that's trying to read me my resume is the spirit of an adversary. And so I'm going to put it in its place. I am not worthy. I am, God is my strength. I have a secret weapon. It is not my strength. I'm not out here trying to be the best preacher. I'm not out here trying to be the best singer. I'm not out here trying to be the most anointed. I'm not trying to go to a camp meeting and give the tongues and the interpretation so everybody will see that I'm spiritual. I'm not trying to do those things. I'm trying to be conformed into the image of Christ. 
The will of God for you is simple. God's will is that you become like him. Take up your cross was not something that you brag about. Take up your cross was something that was always designed to humiliate you. Your cross, and when you carry it, is exposing you before the world naked and not ashamed, though, because you know I am following the will of God for my life. But in the process, look at me, I am weak. What's, I've noticed something when we talk about Samson. I've heard it, I've heard it taught, I've heard it preached. And I, I went and double-checked to make sure it was factual. And Samson, we have taught, is strong because of his long hair. It does not say that in the Bible. Samson said that. God didn't. In fact, the angel, all the angel told Samson's parents was, he shall be a Nazarite from his birth, and no razor shall come upon his head, and he shall not drink any strong drink. He never said, and because of this, he's going to be super strong. Those words never come out of the angel's mouth, and we never hear God say it. The only one who says it is a morally corrupt Samson. And notice what happens when Delilah asks him, from where does your great strength come from? And he says, it comes from my uncut hair. Oh, yeah, well, why in that moment did the strength leave you? It's because Samson gave God no credit for the strength. When the adversary said, where does that great strength come from? Oh, it comes from my convictions. It comes from my holiness standards. It comes from my all-night prayer meetings. It came from my 40-day fast. And in that moment, the power lifts off of you and exposes you to a season of weakness because God looks at that and says, no, no, Samson. That great strength came from me. That came from me. Your conviction kept you weak so that you would recognize it was me and not you. You have somehow twisted this thing and you've made it about your conviction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the strength for a little while. And why is it if his hair was the source of his strength, then why is it that in the moments when he was blind and bald, did he do more in the end as a blind and bald man and killed more Philistines than in his life? Because of this, it was his prayer. When he finds the pillars, he says these words, let me die. And when God heard the weak statement of a broken man, blind and bald, grinding at the mill, and now he's chained and he's between two pillars, when he heard, I'm ready to die, God said, I'll put power back on him because he has identified with his weakness. And this is what put him into Hebrews 11. This is what put him as one who has great faith because of his prayer. I want to die. This is not about my strength anymore. This has nothing to do with my, my muscles. Samson was wiser at the end than he was at the beginning. And Samson was allowed an adversary to come and pluck out his eyes and to shave off his hair. And little did the adversary know that they were actually working in Samson's favor. This is the will of God. He says, I'll use an adversary to make you stronger. The adversary is making you weaker and it's going to actually be a trick for them. They think that it's making you weaker, but that weakness is actually making you stronger. Your source of great anointing comes from God and God allows weakness for it to settle upon you. God's secret weapon is weakness, but there's something unique. There is another Nazarite in the Bible. 
And he just so happens to also be named Saul. And he's also from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul of Tarsus. We know, according to Acts, that he, was, he had a Nazarite vow because he went and shaved his hair to finish off his vow. And we know because he says it in three places that he was a Benjamite. And we know that he is related to down the lineage to Saul. And here is a second Saul, and the Bible shows us this, this second chance, so to speak. We never got to see what the Old Testament Saul could be. We just know that he was too tall. He never identified with small things. He identified in his height. And we know that he didn't like the small ruddy David. And we know that he threw himself on a sword and lost his crown. And yet in the New Testament, God gives us a second Saul, a Benjamite and a Nazarite. And Saul is weakened one day. How? He's made blind. Sounded familiar? This is biblical meditation. We're supposed to make these connections, and we're looking at Saul, and we're saying, here's another Benjamite. Here's another Saul. Here's another Nazarite. He's blind, just like the first one. He's gonna, it's going to end up just like the other guys. This is Saul's demise right here. He's about to fall apart, but Saul doesn't. Saul is changed in his blindness, and he cries out, and he says, who art thou, Lord? He's beginning to cry out to someone greater than himself. He's like a child, and he's saying, there's someone greater in my midst, and God says, oh, I can use this. I'm going to show him all the things that he has going to have to suffer for my namesake. He's healed of his blindness, and not only that, but he changes his name. He says, you're not going to be Saul anymore. I want you to be named Paul. Do you know what Paul means in Greek? It's the Greek word little one. (laughs) Could you imagine? Could you imagine, brother, being invited to the conferences? To stand before the rhetoricians on Mars Hill. Coming to speak to us tonight is Brother Little One. Coming to minister in the house church in Corinth is Brother Little One. The man with the great revelation who's called to preach to the church of Ephesus, Brother Little One. This would offend most of us if we were introduced this way in a church setting or even in a personal one-on-one setting if someone looked at us and we would do everything in our power to justify ourselves in the midst. Well, I'm not, I'm not really that, that, that tiny. I'm actually, I'm a big, strong man and I actually have a lot of power and here's, here's my resume is what we would do. But Paul never corrects anybody because he does not want to become his counterpart, Saul of the Old Testament. He wants to be the new Benjamite that identifies in the size of his tribe and he is over there and he's identifying in his weaknesses and this is what he says not not only that though but isn't it interesting that the Nazarene Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah and Saul Becoming Paul says, I want you to be king. I'm not going to do what my counterpart did. I'm not going to do what my descendants, where I descended from. I'm not going to do what they did. I want you to be king, Jesus. And when I lay down my life, I will gain a crown, is what he says. You can never become Paul 
unless you're filtered through the vulnerable cross of weakness. Saul never took up his cross, and so we never got a Paul in the Old Testament. But by the crucified Jesus, Saul could identify in the crucified Savior. And he said, if Jesus was not above weakness, and in that moment on the cross, the Bible says he disarmed principalities and made a spectacle of them openly. If he did that on the cross in his weakest moment, then who am I to be strong? I will be weak. Paul had the revelation of weakness. Paul had the secret weapon. Paul had the crippled arm sitting on his side. And he tells us about the thing that was on his side in his letter. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God allowed an enemy. He gave me an adversary, and it would beat on me every single day. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God finally spoke, and he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then responds in this letter to the Corinthian church after hearing the voice of God and quoting him. This is what God told me when I was pleading with him. God, please take this thorn away from my side. And God said, no, that thing in your side is actually your secret weapon. And then he responds to the Corinthian church with, with his revelation. And Paul says this, therefore, most gladly, will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. There's so many in this modern day who are fighting weakness with every fiber in their being. With tooth and toenail, I refuse to be weak. I refuse to be this person. I refuse to allow this. We're going to barrel through this. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Meanwhile, God has allowed the adversary to weaken us because that thing is actually our secret weapon. That weakness is actually where God's strength is going to be made manifest. And I prophesy to this church, when you identify in your weakness, there will be greater demonstrations of an outpouring. There will be greater anointings that flow out of you because God can finally trust you and say they won't take credit for an ounce of this because they know they're not able. They know that they can't carry my glory sufficiently. And so I will allow something on their side that will buffet them and you will be so offended at God because you'll say, God, if you were just, if you were kind, then you would take this thing away from me. You would allow me some reprieve. You would allow this thing to go away. And God weeping in heaven identifies in your weakness. He's not a mean God sitting on top of a hill with a magnifying glass burning ants. That's not what he's doing. He's weeping with you and he's looking at your weakness. And he says, this is the only way that I can trust people with a selfish will. This is the only way that I can anoint you the way I was anointed. You don't see me doing my greatest 
Titus until I'm hanging from my cross. If you look on a map, I challenge you to go read your Bible and look on a map. And it'll show on the map at the back of your Bible the location where Jesus performed all of his miracles. Look at it. It's all above sea level. It'll show on the little chart on the right. Jesus is healing people. He's on the mountain. He's up high. He is also preaching. It's up high. He's preaching to the the centurions. It's on high. Everything he did of any notoriety was always above sea level. Yet, when he saves mankind, he walks down into a valley, and he was near the Dead Sea. He's at the lowest point on planet Earth is the location where God Almighty manifests in the flesh, disarms principalities, and makes a spectacle of them openly. It was at the lowest point in his earthly ministry that the most powerful demonstration was ever manifest out of him. And this is what is true of each and every one of us. But somewhere in the bleeding on the floor dispensation of our life, we are looking at it and we say, God, there's no way you can use me. Look at the condition I'm in. There's no way that you could ever operate through me. That is the lie of the adversary, and I'm here to strip from him his power and to debunk lies with fact. God is actually attracted to your weaknesses, not your resumes. If you're not a good speaker, God's attracted to that. If you're not really outgoing and you're afraid you'll never reach souls, that's the very thing God's attracted to. If you don't have a degree, that's what's attracting to God. If you don't feel like you could ever do anything of any notoriety, that's what God's looking for. If you don't have the right last name, you actually have the right posture. If you don't feel like you come from the right family or background, that's the thing that God's looking for. If you don't feel like anybody ever sees you and you feel overlooked, you're the very one God's going to begin trusting. If you feel like you have a barren womb, those are the ones God looks at and loves and he likes to partner with them and bring the miraculous through them because you get no credit. I'm coming to a close, but Brother Tyler can attest to this. It was around six years ago, I believe it was, Brother Tyler, you and I and another young man was in an all-night prayer meeting. And in this all-night prayer meeting, it was a Sunday night. It was after, after church. We went into an all-night prayer meeting, and we just we felt we wanted to do this. We wanted to spend all night with the Lord, so we went and got us coffee, and we got us energy drinks, and we began to pray all night. And in that prayer meeting, God showed me three principalities that were coming against the church of North America. He showed me things. There was an angelic visitation in this prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, I'll, I'll confess to you, I was feeling special. I'm seeing principalities. I'm in the midst of the angelic. It was in that exact prayer meeting I could feel the brush of an angel wing come up against me and touch me when nobody was near me. I felt like I was special because I'm so spiritual that I can reach over into the supernatural realm. And after that all-night prayer meeting, we walked out on the porch. It was around 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. We walked out on that porch, and I looked at Brother Tyler, and I looked at this other young man, and I said, we hit the devil in the back tonight, fellas. On Wednesday of that same week, I had five herniated discs in my back. Don't know how it happened. I did nothing. I didn't lift anything, didn't move anything. Just out of nowhere, five herniated discs. And that began the process of turmoil for me. 
three months, I couldn't go to a doctor because our insurance randomly changed at the exact same time. That week, our insurance company changed, and I was no longer in the network with our primary care, so I couldn't go get an x-ray. You have to have an x-ray first before you can go and get one of those MRIs, and so I had to wait three months to find a doctor in our network, and it was a nightmare, so for three months, I suffered, just suffering. I couldn't lay down longer than 30 minutes, and when I stood up, I couldn't stand for longer than 30 minutes. Up and down all night long. I got no sleep for three months. I was wore out. I gained a bunch of weight because they were pumping me with steroids, and I was discouraged. I was frustrated. And on top of all of that, I'm a man's man. I can't even mow my grass. And so we had young people from our church mowing my grass, and that irritated the fire out of me because I like my lines straight. And young people nowadays don't know how to mow the grass. <laughs> Some do. But on top of that, my truck, people are coming in there trying to help, and they're so kind. They're washing my truck, but I'm a man. I don't let people help me. I can do this myself. They're washing my truck, and they're doing it all wrong. They're putting scratches in my truck. I'm, I'm, it's just, I'm, that, I'm that guy. My garage door broke in that three months, and I can fix anything. I can do construction. I can fix it myself. I couldn't, so I had to pay somebody to fix it. I'm spending money I don't have. My, my yard's all crooked. My truck's all scratched up. And that's all manageable, though. But when the church found out that I had a weakness, the church does what the church does. They started praying for me. They started laying hands on me. Started speaking over me. God's going to heal you. God's going to heal you. Shaking me around and all this stuff. One day, and here's what I know about the church. When we speak faith, which we don't even know what faith is biblically. Faith is not the little ingredient that you put into the vessel that gets you miracles, by the way. That's not what faith is. And if that bothers you, go read Hebrews 11. Those sawn in half dying in the faith. I, I want to know if you have faith to be sawn in two. That's what I'm curious about. Faith has become your insurance policy. Let's just be real. If I have enough of it and something goes wrong, I can cash out and not have to go through it. That's what faith has really become in the apostolic church in 21st century. And so these people were praying for me and God wasn't healing me because God had me in a process. And so the church does what the church does. I had a guy look at me, and he said, the reason why you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. And so me, I can be as stout as an acre of mowed garlic. I looked at him, and I said, I assure you that that's not the issue. I know God can heal me. I have asked him daily, and I have believed that he can. For some reason, he's not. And this, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. No pun intended. I was the camel. On Tuesday, on Monday, I'm thinking about this, and I was mad on Monday. On Tuesday, I was broken. I went into prayer, and I just said, God, I don't have a clue what you're doing. For three months, I've suffered. I have lost sleep. My health is all over the place. I'm spending money I don't have. But now, on top of all of that, the worst part is 
These people in this church think I don't have faith. God, I represent you as a minister in this church. You're looking bad now. And this was God's words to me. He said, you didn't know you had that much pride, did you? When the word of God hit me, it hit me like a lightning bolt, and I fell to my knees because he said no lie. I said, God, I had no idea that was pride. I thought that's what it meant to be a man. He said, in your culture, that's what it means to be a man. But in kingdom culture, what I'm doing to you is what makes you a man in my eyes. When you can admit that you need me and know that you can't do any of this without me is what I've been looking for. And I gave you the blessing of pain to reveal it to you. I can finally partner with you because you will now forever know that it was never you that was doing it. I will send you places that I've designed you to go. I will give you revelations I have always desired you to have. I will allow you to minister in places because now you finally see it's me and not you. And you would have never seen this had it not been for the pain. I repented for a solid hour, and I said, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Those things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, that I do. Deliver me from this body of death. I began to pray, and God began the process at that moment. Wouldn't you know it that three days from that prayer meeting, the pain was immediately gone. You can ask Brother Tyler. I hopped up, and I began to walk as if normal, and everybody looked at me and said, Said, did you get your faith? Is that what caused the miracle? I looked at them. I said, no, I got a revelation that I'm nothing is what God did is he poured out the healing on me because the work was completed. But this was the word God finally dealt with me about. He said, I want you to do some work today in that Tuesday morning prayer meeting. I said, God, what would you have me do? He said, I want you to study on the anointing oil. Go and study about it, and I'll speak to you after you've studied. I began to study about the anointing oil, and I found out that it's made with three primary ingredients. There's multiple ingredients, but the three primary is it says, I want you to put a gallon of cassia in the anointing oil. I want you to also put a gallon of myrrh in the anointing oil. And I want you to put a few ounces of olive oil. And so I studied it out, and I said, God, what does this mean? What are you trying to tell me? He said, I want you to go to Jeremiah. I turned to Jeremiah, and it said, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted near the waters. And I said, God, what does that mean? He said, I want you to study out what cassia is. I began to study what cassia was. It's a plant that grows near waters, and it was used in the anointing oil, and that was what God designed Moses and the Israelites to make the anointing oil with. And God told me, he said, in the anointing, anointing oil of the new covenant trust is the ingredient blessed is the man who trusts in the lord for he shall be like a tree planted near the water we are to put a gallon of trust in the anointing and i said well what about the myrrh he said study and see what it means 
In my studies, I found out that they would use myrrh not only for anointing oil, but they would use it to embalm dead bodies. It was called the mercy ingredient because it would keep the stench of the eroding body down, and it was mercifully maintaining the dignity of the one who died. And so that myrrh would keep the scent of that body from filling the atmosphere, and it was mercifully keeping the stench down to maintain that integrity of that person. And God told me, he said, if you put a gallon of trust in, I'll put a gallon of mercy in it. And then the olive. The olive, as you know, and as we've always heard and we've taught, is the pressing. It's the crushing. But I want to reveal you to the measurements. A gallon of trust partnered with a gallon of mercy. Who can complain about an ounce of pain? Who can complain about the pain? We're so afraid of the eglons. We're so afraid of the thorn in the flesh. We're petrified by an ounce. When God says, there's far more mercy in the anointing. All I ask is that you... Match my mercy with your trust. Trust what I'm doing in you. The reason for the olive was because if you mixed cassia with myrrh, it was too thick to flow. But when you put that little bit of pain and crushing in it, it would flow from the head, down the beard, down the torso, all the way to the feet. God is trying to anoint his body right now. And the only way you and I can flow from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet is he has to put some pain in the oil. But all you have to do is say, God, I don't understand it, but I trust it. And God, I believe that your mercy is enough. This was why God told Paul, my grace is sufficient. There's more grace in this concoction, Paul, than there is thorn. Trust me, this is going to make it last. This is going to make you flow. You'll never reach the Romans without this. You're never going to be able to preach to the Corinthians, Paul, without this thorn. You're never going to be able to reach the Ephesian people. You're never going to be able to adequately minister to Timothy unless you have this thorn. I know it's frustrating. Trust me, I'm crying with you. I don't want to see you suffer, but this is the only way that I can partner with you. And God has sent me throughout the movement to debunk the lies. Your affirmation is not found in how many miracles you have in your resume. It's not found in how many people you've prayed through to the Holy Ghost. It's not found in how well you can articulate a text. It's not found in any of that. It's in how much you can trust him when the thorn comes. And that's where the anointing flows from. It's from those that are weak. I'm here to minister to you tonight, not preach to you. I'm here to pour some mercy into this room this evening and let you know all the hell you've been through, all the problems you've experienced, all the brokenness that you thought God left you in the middle of, all of that was a strategic thing designed by God to 
pour more anointing out and it feels cruel. It feels unreasonable. Trust me, that's what the devil's going to use. He's going to come in the end times and he's done it over the past three years and he says, oh, God's forsaken you. He doesn't, he doesn't favor the apostolic church anymore because some of you died of the pandemic as well. God allowed this season to weaken us because we were getting a little too arrogant. God has allowed this to bring us back to a place of pure worship. He's put the thorn back in our side as an apostolic church and he's looking at us and he says, I'm pleased with the weak ones. All the little ones, I want you to raise your hands. All those that identify in their weakness, I want you to worship me. All those that are a little too strong, I'm gonna allow some things to weaken you. Not because I don't like you, but because I wanna use you. God is not making fun of you. The devil's not fighting you. God's given him permission. This is how we get a Job. We don't get Job without the conversation in heaven of an adversary. And God says, I'll allow you. Not because I want you to beat up on my servant, but because I want my servant to be anointed. There is an anointing that flows through the body whenever there's a thorn in the side of the body. That's what we get. We get no healing without the stripes of Jesus. We get none of that. We're medicine bottles without a lid. And the only way the healing that's in us comes out is when the vessel's broken. Because there is no lid on this thing. And so I've been feeling all afternoon that there are people that are grappling with this weakness and you've wondered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why are you allowing this thing? It's not because he's cruel. It's actually God trusting you. I want to know, this is what it says in Hebrews 11, and I'm coming too close. I want you to stand. This is what it says in Hebrews 11. It says, time doesn't permit me to tell you of the prophets, those that were stoned, those that were killed, those that were driven out, and those that were sawn in two. And listen to the words of this preacher preaching this powerful sermon in Hebrews. The world was not worthy. I'm here to tell you tonight, the world is not worthy of the Ehuds amongst us. The world is not worthy of Otniel. The world is not worthy of the disciple that raises up broken hands, crippled and bleeding, and saying, God, I besought you. I prayed to you and asked you to heal them, and you didn't. But even though you didn't, yet, Will I trust? And to those, when you pray that prayer, God leans over to the heavenly host and he says, the world is not worthy of them. The world is not worthy of those disciples. The world is not worthy of those people that can identify in their weakness. I have asked God, I prayed every day for one year straight. I never missed a prayer meeting, Brother Williams. Every single day. I said, God, I have the ashes of Levi. They collected his ashes for us. You have more DNA in this soil than you did in Genesis. And you raised up an Adam with that soil. You can raise up my Levi. 
And I prayed that every single day for one year because I was convinced. I had faith. I believe the scripture that says where Jesus gave the parable where the woman came in every single day and asked the unjust judge. And he consented to her because of her incessant nagging. He kept on, she kept on asking and the unjust judge dealt favorably in her behalf. And I said, God, you're the one who said you would do it. So I'm going to nag you every single day. And for one year straight, I asked him every single day. And I would pray with that urn under my arm and I would lay hands on it. And I'd say, God, I was reasoning with him. I said, God, if you raise up Levi, I'm going to travel and minister. I know I am. I can tell people about the miracle that you performed. And there will be people that know your God on high. And there will be people that will come to the faith. They will see that your God Almighty. And I said this to God every single day for a year. Little did I know that I was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And God was drawn to that weakness. Finally, after one year, God knew that I was ready to hear what he was about to say. After that prayer meeting, I said, God, you can raise up Levi. You got more DNA in his ashes than you do in soil. I prayed it every day. Finally, God spoke to me and he said, I'm not going to do it. And I said, God, why won't you do it? He said, because I'm going to use you. I'm going to send you throughout the body to minister. And I want to ask you a question tonight. I said, ask me, God, whatever you want. He said, what are you going to tell the person who I didn't raise up their child? What are you going to tell them? My word will no longer be true that I'm no respecter of persons. If I do it for you, I'll have to do it for everyone in history. And I will be unjust if I did it for one and not everyone. I said, what then can come about of this? He said, I did not cause this and I did not allow this so you could be more anointed. I've already brought you through that process. But now that this has happened because of a broken world and problems, I will use this. He said, you are mine, and I'm going to draw closer to you than I've ever drawn because you still trust me. You still trust me. So anointing to me looks very differently than a lot of people. Anointing to me doesn't look like good preaching. Anointing to me doesn't look like good oratory skills. Uh, anointing to me doesn't look like powerful evangelism. Anointing to me doesn't look like growing a church. Anointing to me doesn't look like having a resume of thousands receiving the Holy Ghost. Anointing to me doesn't look like all-night prayer meetings. Anointing to me looks like trust. I trust you, God, whatever you want. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I am a bondsman in Christ. These things, God, I am, I am obsessed with you, nothing else. That's where the anointing flows from. And God wants to anoint every one of you. And many of you are going through problems. I was reminded today, I was quickened of a family in this church who has a family member who has cancer. And I just felt today for you that you've been broken. You've been broken. You've been broken. God is pouring 
greater dimensions of anointing in your family. I want you to raise your hands and God is seeing favor with you. God has seen favor with this church. He has trusted strategic people in this building with brokenness. He has trusted strategic people in this room with weakness. Not because you were arrogant. Not because you were proud. He was trusting you with that because he wants to use you. Because he sees something in you that he is attracted to. And God says, oh, I have an intense calling for them. I have a deep move for them, but I cannot give it to them until they recognize that it's me and not them. And God has trusted you. God has looked at you the way he's looked at his servant Job, and he says, I trust them. I have more trust in them than they do in me. There is something that's going to happen in the atmosphere right now. I'm going to prophesy it to you that God's going to begin to gush forth in this room with authority and with anointing and with power. God's going to bring it out of broken vessels though. There is something that's getting ready to burst forth in this church. God is going to raise you up as deliverers in this region. He wants to use you profoundly. He wants to share things from the hidden realm with you. He wants to bring you up into a third heaven, but he can't do it until you've identified with your weakness. So I want every broken hand, every pierced side, every thorn-filled body, every limp arm, I want you to stretch out that thing that you feel like God has left you in the middle of and I want you to say, God, I don't understand it. I don't even like it, but God, I still trust you. I'm not walking away, but God, I'm a little frustrated and God's going to come and wrap his arms around you. I feel strongly right now. I want you all to come to these altars right now. There is an anointing that's in this place. God wants to pour out his oil upon you. He wants to pour virtue in every damaged soul. Every person that's been feeling weak and doesn't like it, God's pouring virtue in you right now. God's not trying to pour out the miraculous. He wants to put virtue in this body of people right here. When you come to these altars, I want you to just open your soul up and I want you to let that cry out because God is going to do a deep work in this service. God's going to do a deep, profound transformation in every one of you. There's going to be many of you that walks away from this very moment, not because of this message or because of this preaching, but because of his word that has gone forth. You're going to walk away from this being conformed into the direct image of Christ. God's desire and God's will is that you become like him. But to become like him is not just his preaching ministry or his healing ministry. To become like him is to be crucified That's it, elder men of God. God has designed within your bodies to break down because God trusts elder men with breakdowns of bodies. And it's in the older years where God can use you profoundly. That's it, brother. I see anointing all over you. God, I'm
wisdom and brokenness can minister to the next generation, then they can navigate brokenness when it inevitably comes to them. And I felt such authority. And what I, what I want them to do as they come up here, I want them to stretch forth those hands because these are men that are trusting God and have trusted God. I want them to stretch forth their hands, not because they're going to impart. God's the one who does the impartation. But I believe that there's something special. There's an anointing on him, and they stand as testimony tonight. They stand as a testimony. And when someone stands as a testimony... Heaven always amens the one who are living the message. Heaven cannot back up a hypocrite. And so someone who has trusted God, when they lift up those holy hands, the angels back them up. And there's a shift of authority in the room. And that's what I want them to do. I just want them to raise their hands, and I want them to pray their prayer, the prayers they know how to pray. Men of God, I want y'all to pray whatever y'all feel over this room, over this congregation, and I want you to open up yourselves. I want you to lift up your hands, and I want you to stand as a witness of those who stand in this room as testimony to us of brokenness yet trusting. They stand as a prophecy to you. Look upon, partake, this is. And there are many others in the room, but these are. this is just what I felt. And those of you that are trusting God in your brokenness, I want you to pray as well. But I want you to receive right now, this younger generation, receive it. To those that are in that mid-group of generation, receive it. To those I didn't call up here, receive it. I want you to look and say, well, God, they're trusting you. God, they are still living for you. God, they still weep. They still are vulnerable. They still seek you. So can I because you're no respecter of persons. And here's your prayer. God, you did it for my brothers. Do it for me. Because we're of the same household of faith. You don't do for one brother that you won't do for another. You did it for them. Do it for me. Father, in the name of Jesus, there's an authority in this room and there's a witness. God, there's a host of heaven that you've sent into this very room right now. I pray that that host of heaven, those ministering angels, that they go to and fro throughout this room, side to side, and they go and they pour into this room what you have sent from heaven. God, I can see the angels of heaven coming into this room with vials pouring out virtue into every soul, every person in this room. The things that we need for the end time. God, I pray that that heavenly host come into this place right now and they go from person to person. And those that are willing to receive, I pray that they be filled to the uttermost with what's being poured out from heaven. Come on, there's a manifestation of a host of heaven in this room. God has sent his ministering angels into this place. 
There's a host of heaven. I can feel them in this place right now that is ministering to the needs of his people. God's pouring virtue. He's sending you some hope. He's sending you some help right now. He's not going to take the thorn, but he's sending you some relief. He's sending you some, some peace right now.